I am your anchor, an ever-present help. In calm waters or through the storm, I am with you. When you feel weak, I am your strength, your provision in times of need. I am with you. In the highs and the lows, in every rhythm of life, I am with you. Your guide, your wisdom, your counsel, a light for the path and a lamp to your feet. I am with you to the very end of the age. You are never alone. Well, we're continuing this great uh, series, Never Alone, and this weekend we're thinking about the Holy Spirit, uh, the Comforter, and so I want to read uh, from a couple of passages of Scripture, John chapter 14, then also from Philippians, so here we go. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then writing to some of the Christians in the city of Philippi, the Apostle Paul says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, Some years ago, I was preaching in Australia for the uh, Salvation Army, and um, I love Australia. I love the the people, the barbecues, the beaches, all of that good stuff. Uh, But Australia is a challenging place, too, because there are many opportunities to be injured or killed by various venomous animals and creatures. There's multi-opportunities um, for that, and uh, I discovered that while I was there. Kay and I were walking along this pathway, and she was just on the brink of treading onto a brown snake, one of the most dangerous snakes in Australia. She's just about to step on it, and I saw it, and of course I, I reached down and grabbed it and <laughs> shook it around and ripped out its fangs and cast it into the bush. I sent cynicism in the house. Actually, I screamed so loud it was heard in Jupiter. And Kay jumped back and I gloriously saved her life. It was just amazing. But there was another moment of danger. I was scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, it, it was wonderful, really. The diving instructor was a bit irritating. He was one of these muscle-bound godettes, you know. He, he had muscles in places where I don't even have places, and he was, he was tanned and uber cool. I mean, I'm struggling to put my tank on and kind of get in the strap around my neck, and, and he like throws his up in the air, and they land on his huge shoulders. I hated him. And uh, he, he was warning us about all kinds of problems. We were wearing stinger suits. A stinger suit is where every part of your body is covered except a small circle for your face. And then you have your mask. But, and the reason for the stinger suit is that in that part of Australia, they have the box 
Jellyfish, for those of you who need to get out more, who like to know about these things, uh, the Chironix flecaeri is the actual name for the box jellyfish, uh, rather well endowed with no less than eight gonads and 24 eyes. Their sting produces agonizing pain, is reckoned to kill around 100 people every year. So as, as Colossus, the diving instructor, was telling us about this, I was beginning to sense just slight fear and nervousness. And then he said, oh, by the way, and not only that, but there are sharks down there and we will meet them. I'm like, this is turning out to be a great day. And I, I leaned over the boat and I could hear the sharks below giving thanks for the food for what we are about to receive, I'm sure, you know. And I could hear that music, you know that music? I could hear that music. And so everything in me wants to say, look, I don't want to do it, this is a mistake. I thought this was a knitting class. And then he said this. He said, there's lots of dangerous things down there. He said, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And I put my knitting needles down. And I did the dive and we did see sharks and we didn't meet box jellyfish, but he was with us. As we continue this great series, the God that we serve is the I am with you God and he always has been throughout Biblical history, we see him responding to fear, bringing comfort, and answering all kinds of questions, specific questions, with the blanket answer, I'm with you. He's always been the God who comes close at the very beginning of the story. The first revelation of the Holy Spirit, we see the Spirit of God hovering above the waters. Genesis 1-2, he's, he's hovering, he's, he's close, he's bringing order into what was chaotic. And the I am with you God speaks to Moses and speaks to Joshua and speaks to Jeremiah and in the midst of all of their fears says, I'm with you. And the psalmist celebrates that in Psalm 139. He rejoices with this truth. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your presence? And the I am with you God responded exactly the same way to these trembling disciples of Jesus. Everything had centered around him for three years. He was the reason for their existence. And now he's going. And understandably, they're saying, where are you going? And can we come with you? And he repeatedly affirms to them and to us, to me, to you. I am with you. I will be with you. I'll never leave you. Ladies and gentlemen, in a season... In our history, when people are lobbing phrases around like World War III, we are right to be concerned. It is vital that we are prayerful. But I want to make this statement, not on the basis of knowing outcomes, but on the basis of the unchanging truth of his presence. With all that's going on, we do not need to be afraid. The pessimist may say, we're doomed. The fatalist may say, whatever will be, will be. The vaguely hopeful says, I think it's going to be okay. The dreamer says, don't worry, be happy. But the Christian says, whatever happens in this life, I will never be alone again, both now and forever. And even death cannot separate us from that presence of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can. 
So what does the Holy Spirit do in this work of helping and comforting? Well, the first thing is this. The Holy Spirit does what Jesus did when he was on the earth. The Holy Spirit does what Jesus did when he was on the earth. He is another comforter. Pastor Day preached a great message, and in that message, you can see it online if you haven't already seen the first in this series. He used a brilliant analogy of two 50-pound notes, different, but exactly the same. And Jesus is saying, I've been with you as a helper, but now another helper is coming, another of the same type. Everything that Jesus did, the Holy Spirit wants to do for us, only now it's even more wonderful because the presence of God not localized in a body as in the person of Jesus, but now the Holy Spirit with us wherever we go, the omnipresent Holy Spirit. But Jesus acknowledges too the challenge of living this way because he says whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You see, the Bible acknowledges that we invest everything in the invisible. We invest invest everything in what we cannot see. And the Bible acknowledges that tension. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, you do not see him, but you love him. Sometimes I wish I could see him. Prayer would be easier, frankly. I mean, I don't always find it easy chatting to someone who's invisible. It's not always easy. And then discerning his voice. I wish God did email. But then, you know, is that God? You know, you have that sort of tinge in, twinge in your heart and you think, is that God speaking to me? Is that the flesh? Is that the devil? Is that the chicken tikka masala? What is, what is that? And, and then those moments of, of distance. A lady came up to me last week. I was in the East End of London preaching, and she came up and she said, um, "She said I'm a new Christian. She said I'm doing a 12-step program. I'm really, um, it's, it's fantastic." She said, "But but sometimes I wonder if he's there. He doesn't feel like he's there." And I said, "I said I've been a Christian for hundreds of years, and sometimes I wonder if he's there." And she said, "Really?" You still have those moments? I said, yeah, I do. Because we are following God who is currently invisible. So those moments when we are mugged by the implausibility of it all, they don't need to intimidate us. We just need to realize that at the moment we do this thing by faith. It doesn't make you a bad Christian. It just means that you live this side of the veil of eternity. One day we're going to see Jesus face to face and there won't be any doubts. In the meantime... We invest everything in the invisible one. I think that that should say something about the way we present the Christian life. One of the reasons I like coming to Kingsgate is because, you know, I can be normal. Well, as normal as I can be. You know, occasionally Christians freak me out because they they seem to suggest that God's speaking to them 47 times a day. And I didn't wake up this morning, do a triple backflip out of bed, catching my tambourine as I flew through the air. I landed in my cowboy boots, and the angel Gabriel said, tea or coffee? (laughs) Don't be afraid of those moments when faith seems absurd. When I picked up the box of ashes that used to be my father and put the box on the passenger seat, In that moment, resurrection and reunion seemed absurd. Do you know why? Because it's impossible. But with God, 
all things are possible. And so we look past the invisible to the truth of all that is in Christ. The Holy Spirit does what Jesus did when he was on the earth. Secondly, the Holy Spirit facilitates new birth. The Holy Spirit facilitates new birth. We are new people in Christ. Jesus used that language. It's not just a, the born-again thing. It's not just a Christian term. John chapter 3. Do not marvel, he said, that I said to you, you must be born again. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Over the Easter period, I heard wonderful news from Kingsgate, and that is many people coming to Christ and recommitting their lives to Jesus, which is absolutely brilliant. If you are one of those people, I've got news for you. Maybe it's not news, but let me affirm it anyway. What you have just done in the last few weeks is not just make a moral decision. What you have just done is not just adding a dab of religion to your Sundays or getting a bit of faith. What you have done is not even just got a brand new start, although that is included. What has happened is a supernatural transaction because you have now become a new creature in Christ Jesus. A miracle has taken place. It's amazing. It's amazing and wonderful. And I want to say it can happen again today. It can happen again for you, just today here in Kingsgate, I bumped into people who've come up and talked to me about their own stories of how they've come to Christ. I want to slow down for a moment and say that as you've joined in the singing and participated in this service, whichever center you're in, it can happen for you too. But it's not just a choice, it's a transaction and a supernatural event. Thirdly, thirdly, the Holy Spirit enables confidence in the Father. The Holy Spirit enables confidence in the Father. We're no longer slaves to fear or shame. Look at what Galatians 4 says. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir to all who received him, who believed in his name. He gave power to become children of God. And in John chapter 14, we have this language of the Holy Spirit being the comforter. The translation that I was using is, is the helper. Comforter worked well in Elizabethan English because it, it, it meant to encourage, to aid, to strengthen. But let's face it, it doesn't work so well in our culture. A comforter is a quilt. The Holy Spirit is not a quilt. It's sort of nice and snuggly, isn't it? But no, that's not it. Or a comforter is someone who says something helpful at a funeral. But no, here in this language, the word comforter or helper, it is the word paraclete. It means legal advocate, the one who comes alongside. Parakletos. It's used five times in the book of John. So why do we need someone who will be an advocate, someone who will come alongside us like a legal helper? Well, the reason for this, and I really want you to see this, the reason for this is we do have an accuser, 
as well as an advocate. Satan is the accuser. The word Satan in the Old Testament was often used to simply describe human enemies. Five times the psalmist talks about the Satans that oppose him. In the New Testament, Satan is a personal individual who is set against the purposes and the people of God. And I want to say this to you. His primary strategy is not temptation. His primary strategy is accusation. Because if he can beat you up and weaken you with accusation, you'll be easier prey for temptation when it comes along. And Satan has prosecuted a number of high-profile cases against God in the Garden of Eden, against Job, against Joshua, against David, against Jesus in the wilderness, the accuser. And the tragedy, ladies and gentlemen, is that too many Christians, too many of us, we believe in the forgiveness of God, we sing about the forgiveness of God, and yet we continue to live our eyes downcast, our heads, our hearts heavy, because we carry around with us an unresolved sense of shame. I wonder what shames you. I wonder what you would undo if you could go back to the future, as it were, and change it. And even now, as I'm talking, it comes to your mind. And then when you try to worship, it comes to your mind. It's a problem. Martin Luther said, most Christians have enough religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to enjoy life in the Spirit. God wants to come and remind us who He is, the, the forgiving one, remind us who we are, children of His, and lift the shame. Uh, last week, uh, Kay and I took our grandsons to see the Lion King. We got an extra mortgage on the house. And we went to see The Lion King. I've seen it before, and I've seen the film, and I love the music, and it was all very exciting. Maybe you know the story. It's interesting how in secular art, often biblical themes, perhaps unconsciously, are reflected. Little Simba. Remember little Simba? He's cute and bouncy. He's the son of King Mufasa. King Mufasa is the, is the righteous, good king. And there's the evil Scar. Everyone hiss. Thank you for that support. So you've got Scar, Mufasa, and Evo, and, uh, and little Simba. And little Simba's a bit of a naughty chap and uh, diso disobeys his dad, which causes his father to be killed. And Scar comes to young Simba, and he smothers Simba in shame. Simba knows he's, he's messed up, and, and Scar torments him and accuses him. And, and, and finally says, run away, Simba, run away. Never be seen again. And Simba goes away. Scar takes over. It's all a big mess. It's pretty nasty. But there comes the great moment when Mufasa appears to Simba. And Mufasa speaks to his son. He says, Simba! I've been practicing this. In front of the mirror all week. My wife thinks I'm really weird. Simba! You are my son! You have forgotten who you are. You are my son. And Simba perks up and goes back to the badlands. 
And finally realizing whose son he is and who he is because of his father. He lives in the way that he's supposed to live. Jesus is a defender. He's a defender. I don't know whether you see him that way. The man who was born blind, people were accusing him, accusing his parents. And Jesus comes to their aid and defends them. A woman comes and pours perfume on his feet. Mark chapter 14, and and people are criticizing. And I love this about Jesus. I I love it when he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. He defends her. The woman caught in adultery. They're ready to pick up stones. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He steps in as defender. And then he says, another comforter, one just like me, is coming. And that is the Holy Spirit. How does he defend us? Well, immediately we hear about the spirit of truth. I'll tell you how we're defended. We're defended because we are pointed by the spirit to the truth of the word. Satan is a liar. Satan is a liar. And there are people in this building this weekend. There are people in the centers watching here. There are people watching on the internet. And for years and years... You have been subjected to the filthy lie that makes you feel like you've got to run away, Simba. And it's enough. Sorry, passion, but it's enough. Because Jesus died. We've just celebrated it a few weeks ago at Easter. He paid the price. And he was able to say, it is finished. And he dealt sin and death a death blow. There is no reason for you to wallow in shame. And you say, well, I don't feel forgiven. Please. How are you supposed to feel forgiven? Do you get a little trickle down the back of your spine? Does your hair stand on end? Do you... It's not about what we feel. It's the Spirit of Christ speaking the truth to us and us calmly, coldly, clinically standing in the truth. If I confess my sin, He is faithful and just to forgive me my sin. If the judge, if the jury says not guilty and the judge says you may go, the accused criminal doesn't go, are you sure? I still feel a bit naughty. You stand in the truth. Now, we're going to do something a bit unusual. Because the sermon isn't, isn't finished yet, despite the fact that some of you were feeling prematurely encouraged. We're going to have a moment of ministry during the sermon. Is that all right? Why do we have to wait to the end? There are people in, listening to this right now And if I was asking for response from people who've messed up, let's face it, we'd all be responding. We're all sinners. But there are some for whom this is a word that is for now. It's very pertinent to you. You live with shame. It follows you around. It ruins your best moments. It rains on your sunny days. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to do something proactive. 
I'm going to ask you if that is you. We're going to have a moment of prayer and then my three-hour sermon will continue. If that's you, I want you to do something to stand on the truth. I want you to stand right where you are. Not to shame you in any way. None of that. But to say we're standing with you as you stand against shame from your past. So would you just do that if that's you? Just stand right now. Take action. Don't put up with this. Take action. Just stand. There are others. Just go ahead. Just And now in the quietness, there are, there are others. So go ahead. Wonderful. Last time, because we're going to pray. If you need to stand, stand. That's it. Good. Good. Great. If you're sitting near someone who's standing, don't talk to them. Don't ask them why they're standing. Just place a hand on their shoulder if you're sitting near them. Do it. Just go ahead, please. Help. So, Lord, we want to see your people standing in the good of who you are and who they are in you. They are taking action this morning to make a stand in faith on the truth not the lies not the accusations not the regrets but the truth and so we speak in the name of Christ and we declare the power of the blood of Christ can you agree with me church please don't spectate in this moment come on pray with me Lord we pray for freedom for joy for release And we come against that shroud of shame that has blotted out the sunshine of your love for too many days. And we ask you that they will go from this place with a spring in their step, with rest and sleep tonight, which is uncluttered by regret. And wherever shame has bruised relationships, we pray for grace. May they know as they stand in your truth that you are with them cheering them on we agree together in Jesus name Amen why don't we put our hands together and give thanks to God for what he's doing wonderful The fourth thing, let's move on to the fourth thing, but it immediately follows this point, and that is that the Holy Spirit creates family likeness. We have the power to become. And that immediately follows what we've done because, you see, the loss of shame is not a license to sin, but rather the Holy Spirit wants to do that work in us that only he can do, that work of transformation. Second Corinthians chapter 3. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Somewhere in our house, there is a box hidden away somewhere, and I hope that nobody ever finds that box because it contains a whole bunch of letters, love letters, that Kay and I wrote to each other when we were, when we, were we used to say courting. It sounds like the 16th century, doesn't it? When we were uh, dating. And I really hope that nobody, especially my children, ever finds these letters uh, because they are a weird, syrupy mixture of teenage romanticism and hyper-spirituality. I was sort of like falling in love with Kay, but I was a brand new Christian and really enthusiastic. So it's a mingling of slushy romantic language that would nauseate you with hyper-spirituality. You know, like, dear sister Kay, I think you're really gorgeous. Hallelujah. <laughs> Stop, I'm have to put you off your Sunday lunch, that, isn't it? Okay, I love you with all my heart, but of course I love Jesus more. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Ugh. But the, <laughs> I wrote those years ago, and I'm still embarrassed now. Some of you look at me going, for good reason, pal. <laughs> the essence of those letters was, I love you this much, therefore I'll do anything for you. Jesus defined what it means to love him. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, a repeated theme in John's writings. In fact, in the letter, 1 John 5, this is love for God to obey his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll, you'll obey me. But, but that can feel like an Everest to climb. G.K. Chesterton said, this is impossible stuff. But I want you to see this. Immediately Jesus calls us to obedience, he gives us a promise and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You see, Jesus is saying, do this, but help is available. You're not alone. Later in the chapter, Jesus repeats the call. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, verse 23. And then immediately, and then the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Help is available. You're not alone. Writing to the Philippians, chapter 2. Paul says these ominous words, challenging words, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you think, oh, no. And then he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Help is available. You're not alone. And I've known not only that internal power of temptation, but that internal combustion, that impulsion to do the right thing in the moment of temptation. I believe that that is the Holy Spirit at work, working the work of transformation. But it says to us before we move on here, listen everybody, None of us need to be sentenced to sameness. And none of us need to declare I'm only human. Because the Spirit of God is at work. And as we offer ourselves, there's participation, as we offer ourselves to Him daily, so that transformation can take place. Is there a, a white flag of surrender that has been run up somewhere in our lives and, and God is saying, offer yourself again, help is at hand. Well, the last thing is this, and that is that the Holy Spirit 
places us in community. It's not just us and God. We're in community. It's not just us and God. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, we read, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, the church is not just an organization or an institution. It is a body supernaturally created by the Holy Spirit and a gift of or the gift that comes from the Holy Spirit, is the unity that we enjoy. This is not just vague niceness where we're pleasant to each other on Sundays. This is a unity of purpose, a unity of identity, a unity of journey. But we are called, however, to maintain that unity, to look after it. The word means to guard like a treasure. Unity is a priceless thing. And unity will always be needed because we we mess things up, don't we? We're an awkward lot sometimes. I love this church. I love this church. Sometimes I um, have guests coming from America and they'll say, um, we want to see a church in the UK. And I I thought about what I'm about to say very carefully because it can sound like pleasant flattery. In the last three weeks, I've been at Spring Harvest. I've been with Salvation Army people, Baptist people, Pentecostals, lovely churches. I just want you to know something. If I'm asked to bring people to one church in the UK, this is where I'm going to bring them. You're part of a great church. Sometimes you don't see it because you're in it. You're part of something amazing. But here's the news. It's not perfect. And sometimes it's irritating. We didn't sing your song this morning, did we? Little heart, bless you. And we didn't use the translation of the Bible that you like to use. Sorry. And someone, one of those new people is sitting in your seat. (laughs) The seat Jesus gave you. We're an awkward lot sometimes. Sometimes we don't even know how to hug each other. I go to some Christian meetings and people, they're trying to hug at the back, you know. People are coming in, they're headbutting each other. Boom. Hug to the left, go to the left. But here's the thing I want you to see. Maintaining unity is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. Let me explain. Galatians 5 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the reason for a lot of the division and conflict in the early church. You say, you can't say that, Jeff. Let me explain. The actions of the Spirit were surprising at times. And so when in Antioch, Gentiles started flooding into the church, completely unexpected back in Jerusalem, the church wrestled socially and theologically with this infusion of new people. And there was division and conflict because the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. The church is not a static organization. The church is an exodus people. It's a, it's a carnival. It's a moving party. And here's what can happen, I suggest. I want you to listen to this really carefully. Kingsgate is a moving people, on the move, going somewhere with God. What can happen is we can be in with that, but then gradually, incrementally, having given our lives to Jesus, we gradually take them back, we, we drift, 
And suddenly we find ourselves out of step and then quickly out of sorts with others. Um, things that didn't used to irritate us, irritate us, and, and conflicts start to arise. And it isn't that we can't disagree, ladies and gentlemen, because disagreement is part of healthy life. But King, Kingsgate is a church on the move. We, we need to stay in step together. Movement. Now, I don't want you to mishear that. I'm going to hear someone going out of here going, yeah, Jeff told us this morning that if we've got out of step, we should move church. No, he didn't. He didn't. What I'm saying is, let's check our own mobility. Am I still moving forward with God? As I do that, I maintain the fluid unity of the Spirit and link in with the purposes of all that he is doing. 